After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there? Pas te dire ce que tu peux faire pour moi. Tu vas voir, c'est pas compliqué. Tu me parles pas. Tu me poses pas de questions. If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your co-host today, Becky Shrimpton, and with me, once again, as he has been twice before, it's Mr. Mike Peterson. Hey, man, how you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks, Becky. Coming uh, from your beautiful, scenic office in Calgary, Alberta. is in the industrial area. And it looks like a wasteland. <laughs> Which is why you guys make horror movies. That's just it. Because this is what you look out your window and you, see, and you see this and you're like, zombie movies. That's all we can make, obviously. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and you, yeah, we have someone special with us today. Someone that I've known for a pretty long time. And sort of we've circled each other making films for years out here in Calgary. The talented Sandy Summers. Sandy, hello. Welcome. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me here. Thank you so much for joining us. I want to start off this conversation with uh, both of you and a question I have for both of you. As you said, you've been circling each other for a while. You've known each other for a long time. Alberta is very vast, but it's not that big. How do you guys stay in contact and how do you talk to each other? How do you guys make stuff work? Well, that's a great question. One of the great things about, I'll talk about Calgary in particular. I love how we do stick together regardless of how we do it I know I like with Mike I run into Mike an awful lot um, when we have openings or when we're doing some gigs we definitely share Mike has often sent out a, a message of support and you know that's kind of what we do around here which is really amazing there's a generation that uh, this is how I see it anyways there's a generation that started somewhere when I moved back to Calgary and the filmmakers that are part of that and I think the ones that are behind us as well, time-wise, that tend to stick together and support one another and provide information to each other. And I think that we generally celebrate one another's successes. Uh, and it's great to see Sandy. Sandy's first feature came out a couple years ago. I don't know the exact date, Sandy, but I did watch it and I did enjoy it. And I was really, really happy when I saw that that was happening. You know, Alberta is vast, but we do all really care about everybody getting their projects off the ground and supporting each other. And I still go out on people's shoots and just help them out if I get that email of, can you come by today? Can you do this? And I think we all understand the challenges of getting any film made, whether it's short or long. And that support is pretty amazing. I'm not from Alberta, but one of the reasons why I'm staying here is because of this community. It is truly actually a supportive community in the sense of community. And it is something that I do think that we have here that is special. And I know it's not quite the same as some other places in Canada where it might be a little bit more fragmented and the, those communication channels don't exist in the same way. And I mean, I've gripped on people's shows. I've gone out and helped build stuff, brought my kids out for a day to be in a classroom. If I can help, for sure, I'll, I'm there. It's fun. Does it help geographically that your two main cultural centers are so close together? That it's like just a three-hour drive, hour and a half if you're doing it like my dad does? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I guess in some ways it, it does help, but the two centers are, are pretty different. Pretty different. Yeah, and I think that's something that both centers do acknowledge. But even in terms of my support in Edmonton, as well as other places, like they're they're very supportive as well. So I even keep in touch with a lot of Edmontonians as well, and they keep in touch with me. And we definitely helped each other out if something's coming to town and people need anything. 
Yeah. Because their their foundation is largely built in theater, the stuff that bleeds over and gets into film and other things. It's largely theater. There's a theater community there where people can live and work in theater and make a living at it. And that tends to be where those folks come from, more or less. So their foundations are different. We don't have quite the same thing here. I don't think anyway, Sandy, the same way Edmonton seems to. So there's some differences, but it's still, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of crossover. Now, we talked a little bit about you had a feature come out last year. This, I believe, was your first feature, Ice Blue. You have so many shorts behind you before that period. Why did you want to do a feature film now and why this feature film? I love the art of short filmmaking. And I do look at it as as an art form I've can't say I've ever looked upon it as a stepping stone to do a feature or else having done 70 of them probably would maybe do a feature a long time ago. (laughs) One of the things that that I did get to was I did feel that as an artist, I had gone through a lot of different periods with my shorts. So a lot of different artistic outputs. And I realized that, you know, towards the doing the last few that I wanted a different challenge. And I felt that what greater challenge to give an artist but to try and get a feature off the ground. And so that was one of the motivations of doing it is uh, I continue to want to feel like I'm growing and I'm developing as an artist and developing my eye and my voice. So it seemed like the natural thing to do. You've both done a ton of uh, shorts and uh, now working into features. What's the main differences in terms of the creative challenges between a short and a feature, would you guys say? Logistical is I am the queen of getting funding for shorts. So... <laughs> That was hard to let go of. That, you know, might have been a part of a little bit of the addiction is I was really good at funding shorts. So moving into features and often just because you've done some shorts doesn't necessarily mean everybody will throw money at you for your amazing feature. But I had to work really hard at, I'm going to say, kind of breaking through the veil of being seen as a short format filmmaker. Yeah, and I really I really felt that. Um, you know, maybe in the logistics a little more than the the creative aspect. Did you, this is, this is what I've always noticed between the two is that sort of one feels like you're running a 5K and the other one feels like you're running a marathon. So no matter how much you think you can master 5Ks, that doesn't, that just never prepares you for a marathon and just sort of the mental commitment and the emotional commitment. It's just a way longer roller coaster that takes a different kind of mental strength or something to just get all the way through and not give up and be like, fine, you don't need to push that last five percent or whatever it's good enough no it's it's actually really true i i became extremely efficient with my shorts you're right they're they're 5ks they're like 5ks that you want to win so it's not like 5ks where you're speed walking but it's a 5k where you're running your ass off and getting to the finish now features are definitely a marathon and it's a marathon where you want to have the the mental presence to not stop and just to keep going and actually being a runner and running marathons i actually truly took that the mental state of running marathons into my filmmaking for the feature and basically said finish strong don't stop now and i said that you know towards the end of the shoot towards the end of post-production and then once i got into distribution i said oh no they just added on another marathon (laughs) uh, (laughs) i just graduated from being a marathoner to an ultra marathoner (laughs) yeah that's the part that never that no one ever seems to know about is sort of the distribution sales part and i don't know where you learn that other than you just have have to go through the muck so the producer of ice blue is scott lepp and 
he and I just, we went to markets and we learned. And that was so valuable that he had the insight for us to just go do that, to work it out, to see as much as we can figure out, learn on the first one. So when and the second one comes around, we have a lot more knowledge. What, what were some of the things that you learned through that process that you that were surprises or just things you just never kind of thought about before? When we went to the American uh, film market, and, you know, we just ran from meeting to meeting to meeting and and it was really successful. And I liked everybody. I enjoyed all of our conversations. It was all great. I had a fun time. And I realized that, you know, to do your due diligence and all the people that are asking for your film and want to represent you and doing your due diligence in there is so important because you want to make the right decisions for your film and you want to make sure that it's in hands of people who care not only about your film, but also about you. You know, little things like, will this company call me back? <laughs> will they send me reports? I had a great time. I love talking about film and I love talking to funders and agents. And it's just a matter of getting through all that to figure out really what they're representing and how they'll represent you. Do you feel like this is something that's specifically necessary for Canadians, seeing as our films don't get a lot of theatrical release and getting distribution is a serious challenge? I'm going to say every film, um, depending on its quality and what it is. We were lucky to have a theatrical release last year. You know, that was wonderful. You know, one of the things that I've always, like, I think it's really important to get out there and to campaign and to meet people. But I look upon it as I'm either going to like someone, I'm going to enjoy their time or I'm not. But it's the relationship is to be made. And I really do enjoy people and I really do want to create relationships. So I look upon all those meetings as an opportunity. Now, I have to ask you about the film. I really love it. I hope all of our listeners go out, find it. It's going to be available very soon digitally, from what I understand. Correct. First and foremost, why this movie now? Why was this film going to be your uh, debut feature? What about it? Were you like this? I have to make this movie right now. Some days the muse just comes to me. (laughs) Some days it goes away. You know, with this one, I've always been interested in psychology of families and and how it how it affects different people in the in the family if you have if there's secrets or lies or things that aren't talked about and so that in general was just and I'm very interested in in psychology and psychoanalysis and stuff so kind of when the idea came to write the story it was pretty much there as a, an immediate story and I really like the genre of kind of psychological dramas. For the most part, it is a family story, but there is, you know, a few twists in it and a few psychological hiccups that go along with the characters as well. It's just a personal interest. When you guys are casting, Mike, I know you, uh, you've you had the same kind of fun. How much do you guys take into account uh, what the name is? I know uh, Mike works with Monroe Chambers on a regular basis. You've got a few people from Heartland on your film. Is that taken into account at all for you guys? I always look at who is best for what I want to do. So when I put out a call, there there might be some people who I who I you know, want to particularly reach out to. But I also love um, the possibility of who may come along that I haven't thought of that is a huge surprise. I tend to try and keep a really open mind. And if someone comes along and they're kick-ass and no one's really heard of them, but I think they're perfect, 
I totally would consider that. And, you know, at the same time, someone like Michelle, who's in the movie, or, or Billy, either of them have, have so much chops. Working with them is glorious because of that. But I feel as a director, it's really great to work with so many different actors that have different approaches. And I find that kind of a a great part of directing. You're also going to be stuck in the middle of nowhere with them for a few days, so you may as well enjoy their company as well. Absolutely. I really enjoy <laughs> enjoying people. Do you part of your process where you just have it like, just like, you know, loved your tape. It was great. I think you're going to be good, but let's just have a phone call and just get to know one another kind of. Yeah. Prior to actually offering the gigs, I definitely, for the most part, have uh, Skype meetings with them if they're not in town. Yeah, part of it is seeing how you interact with each other, seeing what they're like as as a, as a person, talking about the film and talking. So usually I send the script to them and talking about it and see where, where they lay with the uh, information. So I think I, I do think like you know, meeting them, if if not in person on Skype, is really important. Yeah, I've, I've started to think that that's almost as valuable as anything else. Mm-hmm. Then my question for both of you is, how do you then determine what the chemistry is going to be once you get these people on set? So they might Skype well, and they might be on their best behavior, and then they show up and they're a nightmare, or they just their sense of humor or whatever just doesn't jive. Got to have good instincts, I would imagine. That is something that's so important, hey? I spend a lot of my time considering what the chemistry will be and how that will affect the others on set. You know, you may have someone who's well-trained in technique. You might have someone else who's not trained in technique at all, but they're really good. And trying to feel out how the interaction of all of this is going to take place. And sometimes, you know, maybe I'm going to say 75% of that is really easy And then the other 25% is a little, how is this going to work out? And then sometimes you have to do exactly what Mike said, go on instinct. What were some of the things that you, like now that you've done this film, it's out there, you've had time to digest the experience. What were some of the things that you learned from this, the feature film that you didn't know before has changed how you work? You know, I've always believed in some ways that you should really love your topic and your project. Now I am even more discerning um, where I'm going to put three years of my life towards. Definitely loving the project and really loving it, not just doing it because I think it'll it'll work, but loving the reason why I'm doing it. I also, I learned to be really present, not consider what's going to be going on at a later time or fixing something that went on in the past time, but being really present. And I think you know, in terms of shooting features and being present in every moment, it was a bit of a challenge. I've kind of learned that it was a good thing for me to practice and just being really involved in the moment that I'm in. Whether a feature film in Canada will make money or not, well, that's another aspect of uh, really understanding the distribution process and what's available for you. So I, I think I definitely learned so much about the distribution. People also, I mean, oh, so fortunate to have had a great relationship with everybody on Ice Blue and to want to continue working with them. And they have come with me on other projects. So that's hugely 
wonderful. It's also an incredibly beautiful movie visually talking about we talked earlier a little bit about the post-production. There's a lot of post done on this in terms of coloration, saturation. It's a gorgeous movie to look at. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that aspect of it, approaching the visual of it? It was shot by Nick Thomas, great DOP. Uh, This was also his first feature. Uh, Nick and I went go back quite a while, and we've kind of come together on different projects, but this was the first time we worked as director DOP. What Nick does have is a beautiful eye and uh, huge involvement in, um, you know, kind of the look and the the coloring. And the coloring itself, um, we did with Company 3 in Chicago, which really brilliant. Even the, um, you know, and the amazing post-audio was done by you know propeller they really they're all artists and they came together and just brought the artistry of what we were all trying to create to just a whole other level i bring this up of course because the person who you picked as your inspiration and the movie you picked is also deeply saturated and absolutely beautiful and also appropriately titled fire you brought deep meta's <laughs> fire we haven't had any deep meta on the show yet so i was really excited when you picked this one because she's just such a unique and special filmmaker what does she mean to you why did you pick her and fire you know when i saw fire back in the 90s when i saw it i was just amazed because there's really I mean aside from anything else no representation really of much lesbians in work and being gay I just thought oh my gosh the challenges that this woman had to have gone through it has to be overwhelming considering just the challenges I myself was going through at that time trying to do work that had you know any form of gay in it it was that on a really personal level and it was beautiful and it was such a tragic story and done so eloquently and she's someone who continues to put out work and someone who continues to be challenged she's just a huge inspiration to me mike how familiar were you with uh, deepa meta before we did this show oh she's someone that's certainly been a voice in canadian film for a long time and one of those voices that you know is like an adamant Goyen or one of the voices from Canada that goes out there in the world and sort of represents our films. I was pretty familiar. One thing I've always liked about her films is she's always had a great use of color in the frame. And I've always enjoyed sort of the cultural aspect, something that I'm not always aware of. So I like to kind of enter a world that I don't know necessarily all the nuances of the cultural things, which is part of this film as well. So I always find it a fascinating journey. She also does tragedy and drama. And, you know, she's done so many different genres outside of that and still kind of maintaining maintaining a, a connection with both cultures. Her work is something that everybody should be aware of. She's someone I think is fascinating, especially because she originally came from India and then immigrated to Canada with her husband, who was also her husband at the time, is now her ex-husband, who was a filmmaker in the 70s and started making movies here. But she still predominantly makes films either about India or about the relation between Western Indian relations or from that point of view. And she comes under, under fire of looking at Indian culture from a Western perspective. And I I don't know if it would be under fire so much as it is she has a different point of view that we aren't used to seeing especially as an immigrant looking from where they came from and the issues they had and possibly why they left absolutely she had to deal with so many of those challenges and i i think you're completely right you know she's looking at the culture she came from in a very different perspective not saying specifically western vision but definitely a different perspective and i think that's that allows us here in canada and north america to actually see a different perspective as well. I mean, her voice just 
expands through global audiences. Well, the queer aspect of this that you talked about, Sandy, is really interesting to me because uh, do you know the depth of the riots that happened in India over this film? Yes. I mean, it's been a little while ago, but I definitely, definitely remember that. And that is one of the things that I think I admire so much about her work. She didn't run away from this. She actually did what she saw. She, She created works that she wanted to put out there regardless. But then she also fought to keep them out there, just for our listening audience. Uh, there were full-scale riots over this film, predominantly from a small right-wing group called Shiv Sena, and uh, they literally smashed up uh, theaters that were playing it. They broke glass. They chased people out of the audience. They held mass protests, and the government was actually on their side. And Deepa Mehta and her producer went and uh, petitioned the government and were basically like, you understand this is ridiculous, right? Like, this is not going to destroy the very fabric of Indian civilization. But I'm always so fascinated, and this is such a beautiful example of it, how this film, which looking at it with modern eyes, it's like, okay, I, I contextually I understand how this would be provocative. But now, not so much. But how something like that can have teeth and really have that sort of resonance and how people are genuinely afraid of art and the resonance of art and what can be out there. Do you know my very first work, noted work, was lesbian-based and I had death threats. Really? And yeah, my what? opening had undercover cops there, and it it was pretty bad. This was in the in mid nineties as well. That's horrible. Yeah. I hope we've moved forward as a society. I really hope. I don't know. I'm not always sure, but I oh, hope no. we have. Halsey got death threats for doing that dance on. Uh, oh, was it the Voice that she did? She just talked about it recently. She did a dance with a woman, and she would talk about receiving death threats, and it was like, oh man. So no, we're not past it. Sorry, Mike. Uh, I'm too optimistic. <laughs> Aren't we all? Don't we all hope better? But that's why you have to keep making these things, right? You have to, it's, visualization is normalization, which is why, and representation is normalization, which is also why these people are afraid of that kind of representation on film, of showing this as normalcy. But the film also addresses the fact that nobody is happy with this situation. Yes, continue on with the tragedy of their situations. Didn't the movie start off with, like, uh, the, the mother saying to... The young girl, someday you will see the ocean. Yes. Yeah, that's the opening voiceover. And then you don't actually see the mother with the daughter until later and understand the context of that. But that's how that starts. And and that in itself, just just hear, hearing that at the beginning and, and having the ending come around to kind of the realization of what she meant by that was really beautiful. And, you know, and that's it was a it was a beautiful film within the tragedy as well of at for some point in time women just connecting these two women connecting with each other there was a beauty within the tragedy and a tragedy within the beauty and and she's no pushover i mean she's had this happen on a number of films hasn't she where she's been threatened and people have come in and busted up her sets was it was it moonlight which one she was shooting and it just got shut down yeah while but, she was I mean, shooting that's pretty brazen and bold and courageous to just be like fuck it basically i'm making what i want and <laughs> no i don't care i love it it's really punk rock in a way oh no she's incredibly her and alanisa bombsawin man they are as punk rock as we get in this country mary heron had it too on uh the the the, 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 the american psycho she did i remember an interview with her and, and i remember it to this day uh the interviewer said to her uh, talk to her about being a female director, how she could take on a character like this. And she said to him, 
How in your interviews, how often have you referred to other directors as male directors? <laughs> and he got it. And this was way back when she had done it. And he got it. And, you know, I mean, she's women who just do the work they want to do. I find them amazing because they are going to get, well, as I say, beer cans thrown at them. Um, <laughs> it's a very Albertan way of putting it. Yes, I like it. Well, you know, that goes back to my history of walking down the street with my girlfriend and having a beer can thrown. Mm. <laughs> That's true. But if a, if a pickup truck has become my statement. I, I completely understand that there's not enough, there's not enough uh, directors out there uh, who are women who are doing whatever they want and they are definitely, there are more women coming up in the ranks, but at the same time, it's, I went through this when I was doing lesbian work on how the lesbian I represented in my films all of a sudden became a point of controversy of, you don't represent me, that's not me. And to get to a point where there is enough women out there doing this, or back then, enough lesbians doing this or being seen on the screen that we can put an end to representation. I truly want to be able to do whatever I want to do. And yeah, there may be some backlash, but you know, look at the women we've been talking about who've just stood stood by what they wanted to do, what, what was their voice and truly their voice. I don't want to change my voice for anybody. Well, that should be the idea of the equality, uh, in my opinion is that that means you do what you want. Talk about just one subject because that's how you're being defined. That's crazy to me. It is crazy, but definitely it's it still exists. And I would love at some point, and you know, I don't, when I do gay work, I really don't get the same kind of backlash that I used to. So in that way, Mike, it definitely has changed. You, you don't have to. You don't have to um, say that to make me feel better. <laughs> uh, Mike is the last person that needs to feel better about this, Sandy. <laughs> we don't need to appease him. He's okay. <laughs> well, I, I, and also, I mean, maybe it isn't better right now. I don't know. I'm the world is so anxiety ridden. <laughs> But this also all depends on the audience, right? Because at the end of the day, this kind of filmmaking is intended to be commercial. You are meant to sell this movie, which then people will then pay to see in theaters, spend their hard-earned money to sit in a room and commit two and a half hours of their life to whatever you made, hour and a half idealistically, but we're talking about modern film, so two and a half hours. And and you're, they're supposed to enjoy it or disappear in some way or learn something or be educated. And it really speaks to these all these filmmakers we've been talking about that they can make these movies that are not easy to watch, but that they're still involving and engaging and that we want to see it. And commercially, they're still very successful. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a good question in that. And I, when I produce stuff, we talk about these things where it's like, you know, you can make a challenging film. There's no problem with this. It's a good thing. If that's your intention, you might do certain things that will alienate an audience. Um, and if that's your intention, that's fine. Um, but it's always interesting to see sort of see what your stated intentions are and then if that response matches what you're hoping to achieve. So if you're making the Avengers film, you're probably not trying to alienate the audience in any way at all. If you're making, uh, you know, American Psycho, you don't care if you alienate a certain percentage of the audience. So I think it, it depends on what, yeah, your artistic goals are. And, and I feel that talking about alienation, that's a really great conversation to have because when I do my work with a lesbian in it, I truly am not trying to alienate anybody. I am truly just trying to capture my culture. It's a, it's a great conversation because I am alienating, I guess, 
everybody who is alienated by gays. You're really not, because here's the thing. Then it's just people who don't understand that these are human beings. I think there's a, the minute you look at a categorization of like, oh, this is a show for black people. This is a show for gay people. This is a show for this person. I may not, as a white cisgendered woman uh, who's straight, uh, have that sort of relationship in terms of my culture. But as a human, I can empathize with the things that bind us together and go like, oh, I get that. That's funny because of blank or that breaks my heart because that shouldn't happen to people yeah and and for that i'm definitely not talking about that because i think that's also you know people's own psychological problems um i mean more like how you treat something narratively say you start on a shot and you're gonna stay on you know the shot of someone's glasses for the first 10 minutes of the movie while the conversation happens around it that's interesting you know will alienate certain people it's just not gonna that movie isn't for everyone which is fine there's nothing wrong with that but if you're making that movie and you're like i want to appeal to everyone that likes the avengers you're probably gonna fail But then there's still that element of, I guess, innovation in filmmaking. Like, I mean, you look at, uh, I'm going to bring up Scorsese because why wouldn't I? The narrative feeling of the, in um, Goodfellas, where they're going through the Copacabana Club at the very, the very beginning there, that that move wasn't done before, but it helps move the narrative along in a different way. And when we experiment, it puts us in there with him, following behind him through that kitchen. And so when we experiment that way, sometimes it works and sometimes it really doesn't, where you're like, all right, why are we lingering on this? guy's glasses for 10 minutes what is this supposed to say to me i think scorsese has done so many amazing as a technical director he's crazy good and i really do appreciate his creative approach to using the camera well now we're on scorsese so we've just come full circle of this whole thing (laughs) it's just alberta film to scorsese we've covered it all so that having been said let's uh let's just wrap up sandy why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about how people can find you find your work and find ice blue which is coming out now wonderfully um ice blue is coming out digitally november 5th across north america and it'll be on itunes and google play in canada and the u.s uh, Direct TV and Amazon Video in the U.S. Congratulations! Yeah, I'm pretty happy about that. I'm really happy that some of the people who weren't in the city centers that screened it get to see it now. I know it's so hard to figure out how people are consuming films right now. Absolutely, you can find me at icebluemovie.com. Fantastic. And Mike, how do people consume your media? Knuckleball is on Crave as of just recently, so you can watch it there in Canada and then iTunes and those other types of platforms. And Harpoon is just out on all those platforms as well. And there will be a special limited edition Blu-ray type package thing coming out sometime soon through Black Fawn. Did you guys do a director's commentary on that? There is two director's commentary. There's one with Kurt, the other producer, and myself, and we were drinking and just talking about the movie. And then one that is the psychedelic commentary where Rob did mushrooms and uh, did a commentary by himself at some point in time. I know someone that's going to be the perfect Christmas gift for. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't listened to any of them, so I actually don't know what they sound like. And you don't remember it because you were drunk. We were drunk, but we definitely had a couple of drinks because we were just trying to get it over with. <laughs> yes, yes. One of those artists who hates talking about his work. I get it. And then, as per usual, you can find me on the Twitters at Liz Shrimpton. That's the masculine Liz Shrimpton over there. You can follow the podcast at RCM Pod on Twitter. And please donate to our Patreon. You can do that at patreon.com slash RCM Pod. Thank you so much, Sandy, for joining us. Thank you again, Mike. So appreciated. Thanks oh, a lot, thanks. everyone. Cheers. Thanks, Mike. My pleasure. 
Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.